Thank you, uh, thanks Alice. Um, yeah, it's really uh, very generous of you to invite me here. Um, it's a great honour as a jobbing philosopher to be invited to uh, a meeting of people who really specialise on questions about uh, cultural evolution. Um, so, um, for quite a long time I've been interested in um, the diversity of responses that you get to the cultural evolution project. So at one extreme you have people often trained in biological anthropology, maybe in uh, zoology, uh, genetics, who think that the study of culture has been a disaster because it's been left primarily in the hands of social scientists and what's needed instead is this kind of reinvigorating evolutionary framework. Meanwhile you have folk from areas like social anthropology who just think that the cultural evolutionary project is deeply misguided, irrelevant, simplistic and, and woeful. Um, and so I've been interested in trying to understand some of the tensions between these, these groups and, and maybe even ultimately offering, um, offering some, some pathways to resolution. Um, and so I just want to try and do that uh, in one respect um, this afternoon. So if you ask what kinds of things cultural evolutionists do, um, they, they ask questions about culture. So they ask things like how do we need to change um, traditional evolutionary models uh, when we realize that some species have this interesting capacity for culture? Um, why did this capacity for culture emerge in the first place? Cultural evolutionists often ask comparative questions. So what is it uh, about humans, for example, that mean that our cultural capacities seem different to the capacities of other species? Why are we so much better at doing culture than other species? Uh, and often cultural evolutionists want to understand cumulative trends, so they want to understand why it is that we humans are able to build progressively better uh, technologies, uh, why it is, uh, how it is that we seem to be able to sustain uh, culturally maintained uh, traditions. Um, so what you see in all of these cases uh, is a clear focus on this notion of culture. Um, and I think it's uh, the very idea of culture itself that in some ways helps us to understand at least some of the tensions between social anthropologists and the usually more biologically trained folk who instead tend to be enthusiasts for, for cultural evolutionary thinking. It turns out, surprisingly, that social anthropologists, many of them, don't much like the culture concept, and yet it's the central concept. Uh, that underlies a lot of work in cultural evolutionary theory. Um, now, I want to try and explain this tension, in fact, by focusing on what almost seems to be a contradiction that bubbles up from within the cultural evolutionary community itself. Um, so, in, in recent work, uh, including actually in a collection of articles that I'm, I'm co-editing with a woman called Elizabeth Hannon, uh, on the concept of human nature. Um, you find over and over again very prominent thinkers within the cultural evolutionary community expressing very serious skepticism about the very idea of human nature. Um, Kim Strelny says this, Pete Richardson says this, uh, Kevin Leyland says this. Uh, they all basically say it's time to ditch the idea of human nature. Um, and part of the reason why they want to ditch the idea of human nature is because of their conviction that culture has been of supreme importance 
for explaining why it is that, that humans are able to do many of the things that we can do. Um, so here's the obvious tension. Um, these guys all argue against the idea that there is any well-defined notion of human nature uh, to be contrasted with human culture. Human nature is a bad concept because there is no decent nature-culture distinction. The problem is that if you really think there's no good nature-culture distinction, if you think there's no well-defined concept of human nature, you're also going to be pushed logically to denying that there's any well-defined notion of human culture, either as opposed to uh, human nature. If they really are defined in opposition to each other, then once you get rid of one, you get rid of the other one too. And yet we already saw the cultural evolutionists frame almost all of their central questions by reference to the importance of human culture. So the question is, for this talk, is it the case that by undermining the very idea of human nature, these very prominent folk in cultural evolution have also undermined their own program by undermining the very idea of human culture too? Um, philosophers get a bad press uh, with, with good reason for, for doing what George Barclay called raising up the dust and then complaining we cannot see. So we generate these crazy fake problems and then complain about them and then maybe offer some kind of resolution. Um, that's basically what I'm going to do today. Uh, so um, I don't think there's really any serious worry here. I think that on the one hand, cultural evolutionists can live quite happily with what we might think of as entangled developmental processes, where it's very hard to say, oh, that's a bit of nature, oh, but that's a bit of culture. And in fact, it's because of that difficulty of disentangling developmental processes that we find that folk like Sterelny, Richardson, and Leyland have been very down on the idea that there's a good distinction between nature and culture. What cultural evolutionists do need, though, is they need to do something much easier, I think, which is they need to be able to defend the idea that there are cycles of reproduction that sometimes follow broadly vertical patterns and that sometimes follow broadly horizontal patterns, and that interesting dynamics emerge when you see how these different forms of transmission uh, affect each other. That's what they need to hold on to, not the notion of disentangling developmental processes themselves. So there is an appearance of contradiction uh, in the cultural evolutionary community, but it's benign. It's not really as problematic as we might think. So I'll explain all that at, at greater length as the talk unfolds. Um, and I'll also suggest that things aren't quite so simple. It's not all quite so rosy for the cultural evolutionary project. And there are some ways, I think, in which revisions uh, may be necessary. OK, so here's a quotation from uh, around about 10 years ago from a historian of the social sciences, a man called Roger Smith. Uh, and he was moaning about evolution, particularly in the manner that it was applied to humans. He said, uh, modern evolutionary accounts of human origins continue to reflect the belief that there's an essential human nature, the nature all people share through their common root. Um, Smith was wrong about that. I don't think that's true of evolutionary accounts of human origins uh, in general, um, either in 2007 or in 2017. Um, instead, what we see is a, a large group of prominent people who are dedicated to the Cultural Evolutionary Project casting a lot of doubt on whether or not the notion of human nature even makes sense. Uh, particularly if we want to contrast human nature with human culture. 
it may be quite reasonable to use human nature to pick out what humans are like in general compared to what other species are like in general. More problematic to use human nature in contrast to human culture. So for example, Celia Hayes, psychologist based here in Oxford, has argued that the capacity that humans have, and they're very rather good at it, to imitate others is of course widely shared among human populations, but Hayes's view is that the development of that capacity uh, relies essentially on learning. So on the one hand, it's a part of human nature in the sense that it's a widely shared capacity, characterizes what humans are generally like and seems to be very important for humans. But on the other hand, it relies on what we learn from other people. We learn how to imitate Hayes' things. And so in that sense, it's both part of human nature and human culture at the same time. Much stronger, I think, than Hayes' skepticism of the human nature concept is a very recent piece of work um, in the collection that Beth Hannon and I are editing um, by Kevin Leyland and Gillian Brown. So Kevin and Gillian say the following. They, they admit there may be universal, or at least typical, human traits that are relatively stable across environments and cultures. But they say, these derive their stability not solely from inherited genes, but equally from extra genetic inheritance, including constructive environmental and cultural processes. Now, I don't want to try and really defend what Leyland and Brown are saying here. I want to just give you a sense of why it is that these cultural evolutionists have been so skeptical about whether there is a good nature-culture distinction without necessarily endorsing that argument. What I think Leyland and Brown are doing here is they're basically endorsing an argument that comes from what's uh, often called developmental systems theory. Um, the view associated with people like Russell Gray, uh, Paul Griffiths, uh, and Susan Oyama. Developmental systems theorists do not deny that Genes often have perfectly stable, reliable phenotypic effects of the sort that makes them apt for natural selection in the standard traditional way. But what they do say is that if you ask why it is that genes get to have those effects, it's typically, or indeed they'll usually say always, because of the systemic context in which they act. Genes only get to have reliable downstream phenotypic effects because of the developing systems in which uh, they act. The context, in other words, the gene action, is the entire remainder of the developmental system. This is pretty much what Leyland and Brown are saying here. <clears throat> now, if that's right, the developmental system spoke of Leyland and Brown will tend to say there's no point trying to pick out some subset of traits as instances of human nature rather than human culture. To the extent, in other words, that Leyland and Brown want to say that there are any stable effects, to the extent that there are any universal human traits, what explains stability comes via the inherited developmental processes in which inherited genes act. And those processes will include cultural processes, processes of learning, processes of environmental construction. Um, and that's why Leyland and Brown conclude their paper by saying that human nature, not just human nature, is socially constructed. Of course, the notion, the idea, the concept of human nature is socially constructed. That's uh, a trivial point. 
Uh, Leyland and Brown want to say that human nature itself, the pattern of regularly seen traits that pervade human populations, owes itself in part to the stability of developmental processes in which genes act, which in turn owes itself to social processes of interaction uh, and construction of developmental environments. As I say, I didn't want to particularly endorse that argument, but this is what these folks say. In other words, there is no good distinction between nature and culture. And that argument is, as I say, predicated on this broadly developmental systems theoretic approach. In the case of the cultural evolutionists, they all use the developmental systems argument to say that human nature is an ill-formed concept. What I want to point out here is that those arguments threaten to explode in the faces of these cultural evolutionists because you can use exactly the same considerations to argue that human culture is an ill-formed concept too. And in fact, those very same considerations have been used by opponents of cultural evolution to make just this point. So uh, social anthropologist Christina Torren points out that the culture-biology distinction has long been considered problematic by social anthropologists. They don't think it's a good one in the first place. Maurice Bloch, another social anthropologist, complained back in 2012 that he didn't like cultural evolutionary models because cultural evolutionary models typically involve suggesting interactions between, on the one hand, cultural evolution and on the other hand, genetic evolution, much actually in the way that the, the talks that we've seen earlier. And Bloch says, culture and genetics just can't be understood as distinct forces that influence each other. Instead, they need to be thought of as a unified process. Um, and uh, Tim Ingold, uh, another social anthropologist, long an opponent of cultural evolutionary thinking, again wants to argue that it's a mistake ever to try to pull apart culture on the one hand and, and biology or nature on the other. Uh, instead, we should think of humans as biosocial economies. So all of those critics have said, you can't think of nature and culture as even interacting with each other. There's simply a unified whole here rather than two forces uh, that might affect each other. It's not hard to see why they discern this apparent commitment to a two-forces model in cultural evolutionary thinking. On the face of things, it's absolutely prevalent in the way in which gene-culture co-evolutionary models are presented. Gene-culture co-evolutionary models usually have as an aim tracking, on the one hand, the impact of cultural change on genetic evolution, while also investigating the impact of genetic evolution on cultural change. And those explanatory projects often are set up in a way that explicitly invokes two different inheritance channels. On the one hand, a genetic channel. On the other hand, a cultural channel. So a nice example of this is the work of Holden and Mace on uh, the co-evolution of milking and lactose tolerance. Now, I gave this, uh, mentioned this at a conference recently. Um, Mark Feldman was in the audience and he got very annoyed because I hadn't mentioned that he had also done some work on milking and lactose tolerance. Mark Feldman has also done some work on milking and lactose tolerance. <laughs> and, and, he, and he did it well before Holman Mace. So let me not seem to imply that Holman Mace is the only people who have done this kind of work. Okay. Uh, so, Holman Mace very clearly distinguished cultural evolution from, from organic evolution. So they say, 
They really say lactase persistence is a genetic trait, whereas pastoralism and milk drinking are cultural traits. She, Kevin Leyland himself, in an earlier paper, also says cultural evolutionists tend to view natural selection and cultural evolution as providing competing ultimate explanations. So the question is, when we've got this very clear distinction apparently being drawn here between lactose persistence, it's a genetic trait, pastoralism and milk drinking, they're cultural traits, uh, Leyland in a slightly earlier life saying that, well, maybe it's cultural evolution, uh, maybe it's natural selection, we have alternative explanations here. How are we supposed to square that with what Leyland and Brown say much more recently, quoting from them again, it's not possible to distinguish what's biological from what's environmental or cultural. It's not surprising, I think, that uh, some critics discern this deep instability in the cultural evolutionary project here. Because on the one hand, you've got Leyland saying there is no good concept of human nature. You simply cannot distinguish what's biological from what's environmental or cultural. But then it also seems, and Kevin is someone who wants to push the cultural evolution agenda, it also seems as though cultural evolution needs a culture-nature uh, distinction in order to formulate things like Ruth Mace's claim uh, about uh, the co-evolution of lactose persistence and, and milk drinking. Um, now, as I say, this looks like a problem. I don't think it really is one. Uh, let me briefly explain why. It's probably, probably fairly obvious to, to you folk already. What is the real central commitment of the, the story that cultural evolutionists uh, have a lot of data in favor of uh, regarding the evolution of lactose tolerance? The basic hypothesis simply says that uh, dairying uh, spread through various forms of learning, thereby set up a selection pressure favoring lactose tolerance because suddenly there's all this milk sloshing around, there's potentially valuable new source of calories available, um, and the spread of genes uh, promoting lactase persistence, the ability to digest lactase later on in life, uh, has thereby been favoured by a cultural change. That's really all the hypothesis uh, uh, says. For that hypothesis to be true, we really do have to discern comparatively rapid cycles of reproduction which work primarily horizontally or obliquely of dairying, spreads comparatively quickly, compared with comparatively slower cycles of reproduction of lactase persistence, which instead travels vertically through populations. And that's more or less all that is required. We don't have to, in addition, claim that dairying is wholly cultural. If what we mean by that is that the ability to milk a cow hops from mind to mind, independent of physiological background. We also don't have to say that lactase persistence is wholly genetic, if what we mean by that is that the, the development of the ability to digest lactose is entirely unaffected by sociocultural context. That's why the basic gene culture coevolutionary hypothesis turns out to be immune to worries about how we can pull apart that which we owe to nature and that which we owe to culture if we're thinking across developmental time. Clearly, dairying does indeed depend uh, on physiological factors. Clearly, well, let me illustrate this. Obviously, to milk a cow, you need to have access to, you need to be able to learn to look after animals, you need necessary coordination to milk and care for them, and that's going to bring in 
a huge uh, array of, of physiological uh, skills. On the lactase persistence side, it turns out that gut trauma, gastroenteritis, uh, can lead to loss of, uh, of lactase persistence, sorry, that should say, um, and evidently social influence over diet can uh, affect uh, whether one suffers from such gut trauma. Paper by Swallow from 2003 points out that stress can result in individuals who are heterozygous for genetic variants that would normally lead to lactase persistence can instead experience lactose intolerance. Paper by Ingram and colleagues from 2019 suggests that Somali nomads who lack the alleles normally associated with lactose persistence may instead be able to tolerate lactose because of uh, distinctive gut flora. Uh, and Ruth Mace herself happily uh, records that comparatively low incidence of lactose tolerance in other areas of Africa may be explained by the adoption of techniques of processing milk, which reduce the advantage of lactase persistence. So there are lots and lots of ways in which lactase persistence and more generally the ability uh, to <coughs> tolerate lactose um, can indeed be explained by appeal to sociocultural processes. So none of these factors, which all stress the way in which it's very hard to pull apart nature and culture, actually undermine the basic truth of the, the gene culture co-evolutionary story. Okay, so the gist of that is to point out why it is, I mean, how it is that people like Kevin Leyland can uh, have his milk and drink it, right? Kevin gets to say simultaneously that you can't pull nature and culture apart while also enthusiastically endorsing gene culture co-evolutionary models. It sounds like that's a contradiction, but it isn't. Does that mean it's all business as usual and that we don't have to worry about the way in which cultural evolutionists appeal to culture? Um, I don't think so. I think there are some problems still. So what do gene culture, what do these folks say culture is? Here's a fairly typical uh, example of a definition of culture from Richardson and Boyd in their book, Not By Genes Alone. Um, culture, they say, is information capable of affecting individuals' behavior that they acquire from other members of their species through teaching, imitation, and other forms of social learning. So culture is information that has a particular kind of provenance. Which provenance? Social learning. So what culture is is going to depend crucially on what you think counts as social learning. And here again, social anthropologists jump up and down. Christina Torrin again. The very distinction between individual and social learning is one that many social anthropologists view as problematic. And yet it seems that the notion of social learning is going to be absolutely essential in the way that cultural evolutionists define their primary objective of study. And I think there are problems in understanding exactly what social learning is supposed to be. So there's a nice paper, I mean, if you look to the primatology literature, there's a nice paper by, um, by Andrew Whiten from, from 2000, quite old paper now, but Whiten agrees that what he thinks of as social learning, by which he means things like imitation, um, that's more demanding than what he calls mere social interaction, and here he's thinking of what, what he calls here exposure, what psychologists would sometimes call stimulus enhancement or local enhancement, where you're not necessarily imitating another ape or another person, but your attention is nonetheless drawn to what they're doing, and you may well end up learning because of paying attention to them. 
Whiten seems to hint that any kind of social learning at least requires that two apes, because he's talking about apes here, uh, have to meet up. No social learning, hence no culture, unless apes actually meet. So Whiten says non-social processes include all those cases that do not even require social interaction between ape A and ape B. For example, two apes never meet, but are faced with similar fruits in their environments, may learn by their own individual efforts, individual learning how to peel the fruit in the same, perhaps, optimal fashion. So for Whiten, there is no cultural transmission via these kinds of non-social processes. No culture if the animals don't actually meet up. Now, I think there are worries here, and those worries actually come in part from the social anthropology literature, but they come in part also from the literature on niche construction that, that people like Kevin Leyland have uh, endorsed so enthusiastically. Because after all, humans and other animals grow and develop in environments, they learn in environments that have been shaped by the actions of previous generations. Because of that, what an individual animal or an individual human learns can be affected, it can be enhanced, it can be affected for the better because of prior actions of creatures that those individual organisms may never actually meet, may never actually run into. This is something which is already being picked up by some of the cultural evolutionary literature, including some of the primatology literature, where we have what I like to think of as a form of social transmission, even though there's nothing much like social learning going on at all, because of the way in which previous generations structure an environment such that even when an individual learns solely by its own efforts, it's learning in an environment that's been pre-structured in a felicitous <coughs> way. It's a 2014 paper by Hobater and colleagues, which supports what they call a growing literature that refutes the strongest between <coughs> individual and social learning. So they're studying chimpanzees. Some of the chimps in their group managed to develop a new technology. Um, chimps uh, often uh, pick up uh, water and then squirt it into their mouths using chewed up leaves, which are often called leaf sponges. Um, the group that they uh, were looking at had developed a, a new technology. They found that they could use sponges made from moss instead to soak up water, so moss sponging instead of leaf sponging. And here's what they report in their paper. They say one individual, who they call KW, acquired moss sponging without any evidence of first observing another individual. So no hanging out with anybody else explaining this at all. However, KW acquired M, which is their name for moss sponging, after reusing another chimpanzee sponge that contained moss, suggesting social learning mediated through the products of the moss sponging behavior. Now, of course, this is social learning in the sense that what the chimp learns depends, crucially, on the activities of prior individuals. But by their own admission, there's no evidence here that it's social learning in the sense that the chimp in question is attending to the other individual. It's simply that the chimp finds this old moss sponge lying around. In that sense, the learning, in terms of cognitive processes, is using nothing more than standard individual level processes, no attention to uh, other, other apes. So that's why we also find primatologists introducing these almost oxymoronic sounding labels. So cultural evolutionists tended, at least in the past, to draw this very strong distinction between individual learning on the one hand and social learning on the other. 
if you look to fairly recent work by, by Fragacy, for example, she coins a hybrid category, what she calls socially biased individual learning, which to some ears would just sound like a straightforward contradiction. Is it social? Is it individual? Well, as she points out, the idea is simply that the environment in which individual learning occurs is biased, has in some sense been pre-structured for the better by the activities of conspecifics. So this is her example. She says, she says, for example, Humley et al. described the context in which young chimpanzees in Bosu, Guinea learned to dip for ants. Infants' initial efforts to practice dipping were enabled by the ability of pre-used and hence pre-selected as suitable tools. So there's just lots of stuff lying around. If you learn for yourself, apparently using nothing more than the machinery of individual learning, in an environment that happens to be containing lots of prototype, discarded, tools lying around, it's much easier for you to learn than if you were literally learning in an environment that had been untouched by the prior actions of your conspecifics. So once again, not surprising that the social individual learning distinction is challenged here. It doesn't look like a particularly good uh, distinction in the first place. Um, part of the worry here is that, depending on exactly how far we go in allowing uh, a loosening of the very idea of culture via uh, moving away from strict social learning to these forms of social transmission that don't seem to require any particular attention to other individuals. Um, worry is that we just kind of unmoor the culture concept altogether. It becomes kind of uncontrollable. So again, Kevin Leyland and John Odlund Smith, uh, they say we, and then I've put this in, in my own italics, we inherit a world of our making complete with dogs, wheat, dairy cows, and nectarines, and countless genetic and modified types of grapes, and without dodos, woolly mammoths, and the numerous other species left extinct by human activities. This is both our ecological and our cultural inheritance. Now, the worry here is that because people like Leyland and Odling Smee are enthusiasts for niche construction, it seems as though a kind of horrible slippery slope threatens here. So we begin by saying, yeah, okay, we, we do indeed learn in a sense in environments that have been affected by prior generations, even though we may not be particularly attending to those prior individuals. So there is indeed a sense in which what we end up inheriting depends on the prior actions of our conspecifics. And yeah, in a sense, maybe we want to call that cultural inheritance, because after all, the way that we turn out phenotypically depends on social action and interaction of prior uh, conspecifics whom we may never meet. But the worry is that since more or less every aspect of our developmental niche in some way owes its structure to prior social action, does that mean we're going to let everything count as cultural inheritance? And we find that, on the one hand, we have people who worry that this just introduces this horrible slide from human culture to, well, now we're going to end up having to talk about beaver culture, because after all, these niche construction guys always talk about beavers all the time. And then we're going to have to talk about maybe bacterial culture, because bacteria certainly act socially. Uh, and uh, you know, maybe for people like Ingold and Walsh, this pan-culturalism becomes a kind of welcome end point. Tim Ingolder and Dennis Walsh seem to think that it's absolutely fine in the end 
to, to move towards this kind of view whereby every single species in some sense can be called cultural because after all every single species in some ways seems to develop uh, in a manner that depends on the prior action of their own consciousness. This is exactly why I think some social anthropologists are skeptical of the very idea of culture. And it's already implicit, I think, in some of this niche construction work uh, on the part of cultural evolutionists themselves. So again, here's Christina Torren warmly embracing, jettisoning the culture concept. Social anthropologists don't much like the culture concept. She says, I take a radical view that one can conceive of all aspects of the world, including crucially all dimensions of human being, indeed all living things, as historically constituted. This perspective does away with ideas of human nature and culture as analytical character categories, but does not entail any denial of the science of biology and its ever more remarkable technological advances. So, as you can tell, Christine is a social anthropologist, um, but effectively, she is again drawing on the kinds of considerations that you see in developmental systems theory to argue again that the very idea of culture uh, doesn't make much sense. Now, what I want to suggest here is, again, cultural evolutionists don't need to be too bothered by any of this. There really is, I think, a serious problem in distinguishing in any kind of strict way between social learning on the one hand and individual learning on the other hand. And I think some of that primatological work illustrates quite well why it's not a good idea to think that there is a strict distinction between social and individual learning. But in a way, that's already warmly embraced by some enthusiasts for cultural evolution. So Kim Sturelny, in his recent work, um, makes really good use of, of various forms of what he calls scaffolding, uh, niche inheritance, and so forth, in his discussion of, of apprentice learning. Sturelny's whole idea uh, in his book, the, the Evolved Apprentice, is precisely that, uh, in the human case, learning by, by novices uh, is often facilitated because novices learn by themselves in environments that have been pre-structured uh, by experts. So if a group of experts are making a tool, for example, they're going to leave a load of prototypes, a load of half-made versions uh, uh, lying around. A lot of the right raw materials will have already been to a certain extent pre-processed uh, in, uh, in the workshop. Uh, or wherever it might be, and under those circumstances, learning for oneself uh, is going to be highly effective. Now, Sterling's whole point is that this is exactly one of those cases of social transmission without social learning. This may simply be individual learning in a propitiously structured uh, environment. But this is part of a broader story that Sterling tells about the emergence uh, over time of increasingly fancy and elaborate forms of much more specialised teaching uh, and the maintenance of large storehouses of know-how. is not remotely bothered by the thought that there's no good distinction between individual and social learning. In fact, he draws on that positively in the early stages of his story about social transmission. And what that also means is that you can do cultural evolutionary work rather well without having any good strict answer to the question, what precisely is culture? Uh, how precisely are you going to draw distinctions between social and individual learning? Um, what does Joe Henrik think about this? Uh, Henrik's book, uh, Henrik's recent book, The Secret of Our Success, uh, seems initially to make exactly the, the mistake I've been worrying about. Don't draw this nice, strong distinction between individual and social learning. So he says right at the beginning, 
uh, this book. He says, throughout this book, social learning refers to any time an individual's learning is influenced by others. And it includes many different kinds of psychological processes. Individual learning refers to situations in which individuals learn by observing or interacting directly with their environment and can range from calculating the best time to hunt by observing when certain prey emerge to engaging in trial and error learning with different digging tools. So individual learning too captures many different psychological processes. It sounds as though he's drawing a really strong distinction here. There's, there's social learning on the one hand, there's individual learning on the other. Um, and we've seen that, in fact, these are not mutually exclusive processes. If social learning really refers to any time an individual's learning is influenced by others, then there are going to be lots of cases of individual learning. In other words, individuals learn by observing or interacting directly with their environment, dot, 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 which are also cases of social learning. That's exactly what goes on in those primatology cases where the chimps in question are interacting directly with their environment, they're seeing what's lying around them, they're picking up a bit of moss and they're thinking, oh, maybe I can make a sponge out of this. But of course that's social learning too, because the individual, what the individual learns is indeed influenced by others there, albeit in a highly indirect way. So it looks as though Henry makes exactly this mistake here, but actually he does, because he immediately goes on to, to qualify and explain what he really thinks. He then says, thus, the least sophisticated forms of social learning occur simply as a byproduct of being around others and engaging in individual learning. For example, if I hang around you and you use rocks to crack open nuts, then I'm more likely to figure out on my own that rocks can be used to crack open nuts. And then he says, cultural learning which he wants to distinguish from social learning, refers to a more sophisticated subclass of social learning abilities. So good on Henrik, right? Because one thing that he's doing here is, I think in distinction to some of the earlier work in cultural evolution, Henrik is, is I think, really picking up on the idea that um, it's a bad idea to draw a, a strict distinction between social learning and individual learning. And in fact, sometimes social learning happens because of individual learning. I take it that that's what he's saying. I'm a little bit more sceptical, though, about his thought that cultural learning refers to a more sophisticated subclass of social learning abilities. Indeed, it's not even really clear what he's trying to say there. One thought is that he's conjecturing that the sort of processes that I've been drawing attention to, so, uh, so chimps simply looking around their environment, seeing what they can learn, but brackets doing so in an environment that's already been structured by the prior activities of the conspecifics. Maybe he's saying that that kind of learning in richly structured niches is a, is a bad way for cumulative cultural adaptation to take place, that that's never going to get very far. Maybe that's what he means when he thinks of it as an unsophisticated subclass of social learning abilities. But if that is what he thinks, then he doesn't argue for it anywhere in his book. He doesn't give us any reason to think that what he calls the least sophisticated forms of social learning can't actually lead to, to very interesting, very important results when, when let loose over reasonably long periods. Very similar criticism, um, by the way, comes in in a review of Henry's book by C.E.A. and Ellen Clark. Okay, let's try and draw things together. Um, I think we need to think of culture in, in two different ways. It's a fool's errand to try to ask What's a part of nature? Uh, what's a part of culture? How are we going to tell the difference? Um, 
I think that it is indeed probably impossible to pull apart, developmentally speaking, nature and culture. But as I suggested, none of that really makes any serious trouble for the typical ways in which people think about how gene culture co-evolutionary models work. We saw that in the lactase persistence case. It's very difficult to say lactase persistence is a genetic trait rather than a cultural trait. It's very difficult to say dairying is a cultural trait rather than a genetic trait. But none of that makes any worry at all for the broad aspects of the gene culture co-evolutionary hypothesis. Um, developmental systems theory and also the niche construction approach draws our attention to the way in which collective practices or activities of parental generations influence offspring generations, sometimes in very indirect ways. How many minutes does that say? Five? Yeah, that's good. Um, uh, and so because of that, uh, we should also remind ourselves that simple distinctions between individual learning and social learning are, I think, often inadequate. You can have something that deserves the name of cultural transmission or social transmission, uh, even with purely individual learning set uh, in a properly structured uh, niche. But all of those worries for the culture concept still leave the bare, uh, still leave the, the most important aspects of the cultural evolutionary project intact. So right at the beginning of the talk, we saw that you know, these folk are interested in asking questions like, how is it that different forms of learning first emerged in the human species? Uh, how do they differ in the capacities that they confer on our species and on others? And all of those questions can survive intact, even if we can't answer in any nice, clear way how we're going to distinguish nature from culture. So as I say, in that respect too, scepticism about the culture concept or the nature-culture distinction leave the cultural evolutionary project intact, even though it might not look like it to begin So let me offer what I'm going to call an ironic resolution here. So I want to suggest that at least some of the hostility between social anthropological approaches and biological anthropological approaches to culture may, may well be misplaced. Um, social anthropologists, as we've seen, have long expressed skepticism about naive distinctions between nature and culture, and they've also long expressed skepticism about naive distinctions between individual learning and social learning. And I think they're right to be concerned about whether we can draw those distinctions. But I've also tried to suggest that very similar concerns are at least beginning to have an influence on cultural evolutionary thinking itself. So we've seen that in the primatology community, for example, there is also a skepticism of this individual social learning distinction. Similarly, in the work of people like Sterelny on cultural evolution. So there's a kind of heartening sense of convergence here in the way that uh, we should think about culture. Um, so I'm going to suggest maybe an ironic resolution so I've tried to say it's a kind of fool's errand to argue in the abstract how we're going to distinguish between nature and culture. I don't think there's any nature-culture division that's kind of served up to us by the world such that we could go around and say, well, I'm going to tell you the facts. This is where nature starts. This is where culture starts. But I do think that cultural evolutionists use the culture concept in ways that are perfectly reasonable and perfectly valuable given their pragmatic aims. Gene culture co-evolutionary models, for example, are a perfectly respectable uh, mode of investigating why it is that, that, uh, that lactase persistence has emerged in humans, for example. 
And we can understand better why and how it is that their use of the culture concept is respectable, but by looking at just how these notions are, are used pragmatically in, in the day-to-day -day investigative lives of cultural revolutionists. Um, in other words, we learn all of this by doing exactly what social anthropologists tell us to do, namely take seriously the ontologies of native communities and come to a respectful understanding uh, of how their concepts work. Uh, okay, thank you.